0: Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone. I'm so excited about my guest today. Shelly Taggalski is a trauma-informed mindfulness teacher, self-care activist, and the founder of the global grassroots mutual aid organization, Pandemic of Love. Her work has been featured in over 100 media outlets, including CNN Heroes, the Kelly Clarkson Show, CBS This Morning, the New York Times, and the Washington Post a Garrison Institute Fellow. She's been called one of the 12 powerful women of the mindfulness movement by mindfulness.org and teaches self-care and resilience at organizations and to audiences around the world. Shelley, welcome to We Earth Radio.
1: Thanks so much, Michael, for having me. I guess just,
0: I, I wanna get your background, but I wanna, I'm so excited about what you started. I wanna talk about, you're known as the founder of the pandemic of love, You started it just after COVID-19, and it was a huge, huge, even, even the president of the United States commented on it. So how did it all fall together and come about and become viral? Uh, And just, it it went global.
1: Let's just first dissect that word viral, pun intended or pun not intended. It's really incredible how quickly our collective consciousness just like shifted to think that the only things that can go viral are viruses or diseases. Mm -hmm. Whereas so many other positive things can go viral. Things like that create movements, right? If it's kindness or hope or love, And I think what Pandemic of Love has done, which when we'll get to what it is in a moment, has proven that when a lot of people do a little bit similar to the way that a virus can spread, so too can all of these incredible forces that can really shift just the social consciousness of the world. So Pandemic of Love, it's so interesting because I think when you watch sort of the CNN heroes segment, or you watch anything on, on our media page, let's say they love to share a story that isn't entirely true. It may be a little bit sexier to tell, but it's not entirely true. It's it's of this like woman who is, has no experience is somebody who has never really worked her entire life and is just sitting around her kitchen table thinking, I really want to help my community. What should I do? And bam, comes up with this idea. And that's, a nice story, but that's not really the true story. The true story is that as you kind of like reflect back on on your life, you think, okay, I spent 20 years in the corporate world. I certainly had a lot of incredible experiences, met a lot of great people along the way, uh, learned a lot of things, but it wasn't until I think in the last couple of years that I recognized that All of that experience, all of what I learned about how to scale organizations and run organizations and organize and create standard operating procedures and manage people was brought forth by my experience for two decades in corporate world, right? That I left in, in 2015. In addition to that, I already had a community. I was very much a community organizer at the time in South Florida where I was living. I had a meditation community that where thousands of people would gather on a weekly basis at the beach in, in Hollywood, Florida, to meditate. We would gather 40 out of 52 weeks a year, pre-COVID, since 2015. And so we were already enacting a form of mutual aid in a closed circuit, sort of, in within our community. So after a hurricane would come to Florida, which is an annual occurrence. Now, people would lose power, people wouldn't be able to shelter and home properly, because they didn't have the resources to do that. And so our community would come together and make sure that that was done. Or if somebody in our community had an illness, you know, whether it was a terminal illness, or, you know, just uh, an illness that they could recover from, we would gather around that person and surround them with everything that they needed, you know, and and bring them food and bring them help with bills, if they needed help with bills and so on. Same thing during certain times of year, whether it was the holiday season or back to school and so on. You know, we were already in a very sort of formalized way, creating this beautiful, reciprocal, mutually beneficial community where it was inherently understood that every single person within our meditation community had something that they could offer regardless of their socioeconomic status, and that every person had something they needed regardless of their socioeconomic status. Uh, and so we just wanted to create this like sort of redistribution of wealth within our community, wealth being loosely defined. I think we, we say wealth, we automatically in the Western world think money. But people suffer from time poverty and data poverty and a lot of other forms of poverty. And so, so it's, it's really just so interesting that that sort of background is not mentioned when Pandemic of Love is mentioned. The, the brief story of Pandemic of Love is that as we were about to shelter and home in Florida, we were one of the last states to do it. I started to feel a lot of angst and fear and everything that everybody was feeling really at the time, right? We didn't know a lot about the virus. We did not have access to PPE at the time. There was a shortage in the world. And so we were still, you know, wiping down our groceries before bringing it into the house. And I realized that a lot of people in our community just did not have enough. They could not shelter in home. They were really barely surviving and struggling to make ends meet prior to the pandemic. And this was just going to completely decimate them. And especially those who had children who were school-aged, now all of a sudden needed to make sure that they had Wi-Fi and laptops and were able to remotely attend school. So we wanted to make sure that everybody in our community had enough. And I decided at that time to sort of widen the scope, not just to our meditation community, but to the, commu- the South Florida community at large. The bigger, the better. The bigger pool, the better, I thought. And, and I'm not a technologically savvy person. I put up two very simple links called Give Help and Get Help. There was no website to begin with. I just put up these two links with Google Forms, very simple forms. It's still a very simple process. And the idea behind Pandemic of Love is that a person who has something that they need, let's say a utility bill, fills out the form. A person who has the capacity to do something for someone in their community fills out a form as well. And let's say they check off, I can pay somebody's utility bill this month. We basically are volunteers that the person in need, because we have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure they're real. We connect the two individuals and then we step out of the way. Mm -hmm. So a human connection has to happen. The donor drives the bus. The donor has to be the one that reaches out to the person in need and maybe utters the words, what do you need? How can I help? you know, and, and make them feel seen and heard and possibly utter words that that person has not heard ever, if maybe not for a long time. And so it's really this beautiful way to create proximity within a community between people who are seemingly, you know, consider themselves as strangers and really beautiful results have happened other than just transacting At at this point, here we are over two years later, over $62 million of aid directly between people and matching over 2.2 million people. It's not just about the match. It's really about the friendships that have formed and the understanding that we all have something to contribute. And that sort of circle of giving doesn't just go one way. It goes both ways.
0: That's so beautiful. And one of the things that surprised me the most was how much you had more people offering than asking that just touched me so deeply because it's easy to get cynical if you read yeah. the news or like the, the way the media construes things and focuses sure. on the negative and then the healing part of it and I remember in your book one letter that was written mm-hmm. about a woman who was a democrat and very straight democrat and given the trump supporter (laughs) someone share about that letter because i was just in tears reading that
1: yeah you know the timing of that letter couldn't have been more perfect because it was right before the election in november of, of 2020 and you know the the environment was just so i mean not that it's 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 been up and down ever since, really. But 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 really, the the just you could feel the tension when you're walking, you were know, walking around in any city in America, really. Eileen, who is a woman in New York, a self-proclaimed liberal hippie Jew—that's how she describes herself in the letter. She spent her life; she's retired now, but spent her life as a social worker working with the LGBTQIA community working for the AIDS movement in the 80s, especially when you know there was a little bit known about that virus. She was really pissed off that we matched her with a woman named Christine in Mobile, Alabama, who lived in a trailer, right? In a, in a mobile home, in a trailer park in Mobile, Alabama, with two children, a single mother, very proud of her Southern heritage, very proud of her Confederate heritage, and, and really just completely had this, They both had these this conditioning, these lenses that they looked out of and immediately marked the person that they were matched with, thinking, you know, Christine thinking, oh, there's a snowflake liberal hippie from New York, a Yankee who's going to tell me what to do. You know, and she's better than me and she's more educated and privileged, et cetera. Whereas uh, Eileen already had her preconceived notions about Christine and It's interesting because Eileen, I knew Eileen informally through meditation. Whenever she would come down to Florida, she would meditate with us. She was, you know, not having it for a minute. She was just really upset about the fact that somebody who was she, in her own words, was harming her, was being now somebody that she was supposed to help. Like she couldn't, she couldn't wrap her head around that. And I listened to her gripe and I listened to her complain and bemoan this match And I just paused for a moment and I asked her to consider what it would look like to Christine if she did not go through with the match, if she did not help her. And asked her to consider whether or not she thought that maybe Christine, she would reaffirm for Christine everything that Christine already thought about someone like her or from where she's from. And I think that that created a great pause for her you know, And she was able to understand that just like we practice metta, we practice loving kindness and we cultivate compassion on the cushion, so to speak, this is an opportunity to take that out into the real world. It's, it's one thing to just send well wishes to a person you're having difficulty with, but it's a whole other level of bringing meditation into the world and getting off of your cushion and sort of really enacting the love that you're cultivating in the real world. Um, For another sentient being to actually reach out your hand, as scary as it may seem, to say, I'm having great difficulty with you, but I'm going to help you anyway. And I love you because you are a fellow human being. And she decided to do it. I didn't hear back from her for months. And I only got this letter like maybe a few weeks before the election. And I shared, I I asked her for permission. I wound up sharing it on my social media accounts. But it was incredible because it was really proof that through proximity, and I talk about this a lot th- in my book as well, as an Israeli who was raised really to fear Palestinians, to fear anybody speaking Arabic and Muslim, they want to kill you, they want to kill all Jews, they don't like Israel, you know. And that's, it was only through proximity uh, later in my life that I could really come to my own decisions about that. And I really don't think that if I hadn't, had a chance to kind of get out of the box that i was being forced or being confined in for my whole life to actually, you know, interact and have and make my own decisions and get out of my own way and take out these lenses, you know, that 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 we 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 are sometimes forced to put on as we're being raised or just again through societal norms I don't think that I would have changed my mind either. And so, so I think it was a lesson for a lot of people, which is why I thought this is an important letter to share in the book, because I want people to understand that it's not just about paying somebody's phone bill or uh, in, in Eileen's case, providing grocery, you know, Walmart gift card for groceries for her children. It's really an opportunity to provide a lens into your life and to have conversations that change people's minds or at least expand their minds about the possibility that broad strokes, which we love to brush on people and swaths of people, that maybe there's a possibility that that isn't accurate.
0: Yeah. For me, that's the brilliance of, of this project. It really recognizes the interconnectedness of everyone and all life. It's just such a beautiful uh, example of it. Especially that story really touched me. But let's go back and talk about the making of Shelley Tegelski. Here you are, you were brought up in Jerusalem. Your grandmother was air out of Iraq from a very strict traditional Jewish background. And here you are now, teaching meditation married to a non-jew yeah talk about the evolution of you through all of that and give us a little background maybe include sure. the story of being kidnapped if uh... <laughs>
1: yeah i mean i so yes i was i was born in jerusalem on my father's side i'm actually the 19th generation born in jerusalem in the old city of jerusalem Uh, My father's family is originally from Spain, from Toledo, Spain, they left after the Inquisition and a part of the family went to Jerusalem, returned to Zion, and a part of the family went to Greece and to other places around the world. And my mother's family, as you mentioned, my mother was actually also a ref, you know, she was a refugee too, not just my grandma. My mother came into Jerusalem when she was two years old from uh, Iraq, from Baghdad. She, they were airlifted. It was like a secret operation, middle of the night to get all of the, the Jews out of Iraq at that time, because they were in grave danger. Um, in 1949, she came to, to the country that was, um, you know, one year old at that time of, of Israel. It's interesting because my grandmother was illiterate and my grandmother did not speak uh, Hebrew very well. She spoke her native tongue. She spoke Arabic and she spoke a native tongue of Aramaic, which is a sort of dialect of that Kurdish people in Iraq spoke. It's interesting because I do think a lot about the fact that I am one generation removed from a woman on a mountaintop in Iraq that does, that didn't know how to read and write. And here I am you know, writing a book, you know, being a public speaker, living this entirely completely different life. And like who would have thought? You know, it's it's really humbling to to just just step back often and think about that and think about what she maybe would have thought. My mother inherited and I think we we all did, as women in my family, inherited sort of this second-class citizen gene, you know, that that is wrapped and laced in a lack of self-esteem and a lack of the ability to speak up for ourselves. Obviously, I got out of that habit. <laughs> we could talk about that. But, you know, I was raised here in the U.S., but I was very much raised in a in a bubble. We came here to the U.S. when I was two years old. As you alluded to, you know, we we I was kidnapped when I was two, came to New York. My mother reluctantly came here with myself and my two older brothers. She did not want to partake in any part of the American dream whatsoever. And she was just very uh, resentful of the fact that my father wanted to bring the children here. And so she went to go get uh, an eye exam at the DMV in Brooklyn, and lo and behold, I was a very gregarious, talkative child. I probably wandered off, but there were no cameras back in the day. This was in the 1970s. And I was carried off by a couple that, you know, was probably in the waiting room with us, and a woman that was also in the waiting room with us, before my mother's appointment got called in, she saw that this couple was walking off with me and she recognized that something was wrong. And in that moment, she had a decision to make. Right. And I think in life, we always have these like moments where we could make a decision. Right. And, Doing nothing is one decision. And a lot of times people think, well, doing nothing is not really a decision point, but it actually is. Doing nothing is actually a decision that you actively make. The other decision she made, she could have made was to take the safe route and go try to find my mother and alert somebody there. But at that point, I could have been like, you know, gone forever and instead, she walked out after these individuals and followed them several city blocks to see where they were walking into, and came back to alert my mother, who at that point was in hysterics, of course, barely speaking a word of English. And you know, my mother was very adamant about leaving New York. She, you I want to take any part in the, in living in New York. So we wound up moving. To South Florida, which is where my father had like one other person that he happened to know in the United States. I was raised in South Florida and very much a middle-class suburban, I would say, mostly Jewish community. But you know, there was diversity within my community, and and I also suddenly was introduced to this concept that there were other ways of being Jewish. You know, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. We were Shomer Shabbat, meaning we kept the laws of the Sabbath. I was raised to you know eat kosher. And, and we spoke Hebrew. Suddenly, I was introduced to the fact that there are conservative Jews and reformed Jews and that sometimes in synagogues, people sit together. And And it was just very bizarre to me because in Israel, like, and especially even in my parents' way of teaching, there was only two ways of being. It's like, you're either Jewish or you're not Jewish. Like, you're either a Jew or you're a non-Jew. Like, there's nothing... That's the only thing that they need to know about you, you know, those two things. And so that's a very limiting way to grow up and to be raised to think about the world. And so as I was attending secular school, my parents could not afford to send me to a, a private Jewish school. I I was just kind of taking notes and, and completely getting imprints every single day, learning about different cultures and different religions and backgrounds and befriending people who were all from all spectrums and all walks of life and all cultures and religions, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was very interesting to sort of grow up because I had, I always, you know, and I think I alluded to this in the book that I was like Shelly A and Shelly B, you know, I was like Shelly A at home, very much the Jewish girl who did what her parents told her to do and was very proper, etc. And then I was like this whole other person on the outside world who tried out for chorus and ran for student government and wanted to play sports and like boys who had crushes on boys that weren't necessarily Jewish. It was very hard to sort of play both parts. And I think that eventually, what ultimately happened was that at at some point in my life, I sort of this fracture. I had to kind of step in and fuse those two worlds, which which didn't happen until much later. Until I left home and had the opportunity, to kind of get these data sets and inputs from from many other people who have informed a lot of work in my life.
0: Wow, quite a story you've got. I'm just thinking of the the kidnap. You know why that was in the book, and I and I really see how much that was an early reminder of someone doing something for others that put themselves at risk to support yeah. you know to do that and it was that's really beautiful that yeah and, and I can see that was a seed for you and then going to uh meditation that was a conflict and and you met Sharon yeah. Salzberg who I adore yeah. and yeah. she also wrote an afterword in the in your book talk mm-hmm. about that whole jump from that transition to the B, the B, Shelley, and going yeah. to the meditation. And-
1: yeah. So I was a graduate student in New York. I was fortunate enough to be attending, you know, an incredible university, uh, Columbia University. I recognized at that point in my life that I have, I it was an opportunity. It was a privilege to be surrounded by so many smart people who knew way more than I did and had way more life experiences. And so I don't know what it's like today, but back then in the in the early 90s when I when I attended school there, you paid for a certain amount of credits to be full time. Whether you took 15 credits or 21 credits, which was the max you could take, you were paying for like a full-time credit. It wasn't like you were paying per class. And so I just basically made the decision that regardless of what My field of study was going to be that I was going to always take one uh, uh, non-class for like no grade and just sort of audit a class for the, in the pursuit of learning and pursuit of knowledge, choose to be more well-rounded and learn about things that really I just did not have access to as, as a child. And so I, I wound up taking things like French and violin and pottery, and then one semester I took I realized that growing up I'd never met a Buddhist. I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I knew really very, very little growing up in South Florida. I knew a lot about like Cuban culture and about you know Latino culture, but I did not know anything really about in general Asian culture, but also about Asian religions or about Eastern religions, et cetera. And so I wound up taking a class with Robert Thurman, Dr. Robert Thurman. He, at the time, he had already started Tibet House, which was in the Lower East Side around the Chelsea district. And I was just really fascinated by the history. Of, of Buddhism, of sort of modern meditation here in the West. And an invitation came to the entire class that if we are interested in, in, in continuing our education as the course was coming to an end, that we can always drop into Tibet House for free meditation sessions, lectures, and so on, all these great offerings that they had. And I decided to take the bait and, and bite at it. And I thought okay, let me look at the schedule. You know, It was printed out. This was, again, back in the day when we did not have uh, smartphones or anything like that. And so I looked at the schedule and there were a few days that worked for me and times. I decided on a Wednesday class at a specific time because the name Sharon Salzberg sounded Jewish to me. And I thought, okay, a woman her name sounds Jewish. I'm going to go check this out and see what it's about. And I started to attend uh, Sharon's uh, meditations, loving kindness practice. And really after the first session of sitting with her, something incredible just transformed within me because I realized that, you know, my whole life, my spiritual and contemplative practice again was so boxed in it was so limited it was like this is the way we do things here are the words you say this is how many times a day you do it you know it was just very rote very prescribed and to suddenly sort of have this blank canvas to speak to source or god or spirit or you know and and really think about your relationship on your own terms with your spirituality was very foreign to me and it was really liberating at the same time and scary. And I really thought that I would have to choose um, between one or the other. And it wasn't until I finally mustered up the courage after many sessions of not saying a word and sitting like in the back of 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 the classroom to wait until I could walk Sharon out one day and ask her, a very important question. (laughs) It's interesting because for, for her, because we talk about it now, like I'm still, she's very, still much, very much a presence in my life. And, you know, we speak very often multiple times a week. He doesn't remember it because it's not something that I think was like this profound moment in her life, but it was a life-changing moment for me. And I asked her this very important question: Are you Jewish? <laughs> Which was for me a very important question. And she looked at me and, in a typical Sharon way, said, "Yeah, you know, I'm a boo or Jew boo. Like you could be both," and just giggled. And I thought, "Wait a minute, what? Like you could be both? What does that even mean? You know, like?" So she gave me this permission to hold multiple truths and duality. And to understand that we don't live in this sort of black and white, either or, Jew, non-Jew, dual du- world of duality that I was really taught, you know, to sort of abide by. And she just completely blew open my world, you know, the box, the, the confines of this box were gone And it gave me the opportunity and the permission to really explore on my own terms, what my faith looked like, what my practice looked like, what my relationship to higher power looked like. And it was incredible because that was really the start of my my journey.
0: I'm just curious what your parents thought of this. And then, of course, marrying a non-Jew. Yeah. Uh, Was your first marriage arranged or was it?
1: No. So my first marriage was um, my parents. They did introduce us. Like my parents actually met my my ex-husband before I ever met him. But it wasn't like you're marrying this person. You know, it was very much. He he like fit the 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 prototype of like what it is that they wanted. Right. A Sephardic Israeli. Jewish person, and so he fit the mold on paper for them. And you know, unfortunately, like sometimes those kinds of things work out, but unfortunately, it did not work out. Fortunately, I have a beautiful son from from that marriage who's now twenty years old. My my husband Jason and I we've been together for over fifteen years. When and understand that at this point in time, my son was like three years old or four years old when Jason and I met, and and decided that we're getting married. And when he met my parents my parents wanted nothing to do. At this point, I'm a grown woman who's already been married, is self-sufficient, lives on my own, successful in, 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 you know, in business, et cetera, et cetera. And my parents treated my, you know, my ex-husband, like a pariah. They basically were like, my father especially was just like, "Ah, wants, wanted nothing to do with him. They were so devastated that that I would make a choice to be with somebody that didn't fit their mold.
0: They cut yeah. you out for two years, didn't they? They did.
1: They did. They didn't talk to me. They didn't talk to myself or Jason for, for, for a few years. And it wasn't until like a week before our wedding that they were like, we should get together for coffee. And then they decided to come to the wedding. They don't look very happy in any of the the wedding pictures, by the way. <laughs> but you know, fast forward, my my mother and my husband Jason have a great relationship now. Like they a genuine, loving relationship where she really does consider him to be like her son. And he, who could have predicted that? You know the the point here is is that. One, you should always leave the door open. Love sort of, love finds a way. Uh, There is an opportunity to forgive and atone. It doesn't mean you have to forget all of the things, but I think there is an opportunity and you don't always have to like close the door permanently and like turn put up all the padlocks, but rather in this case, you know, I think- through trial trial and error, there was a lot of, um, and there were missteps along the way, but I think the, the intention was there to try to create a relationship that was based on trust and respect, et cetera. And I think that the fact that my mom, for example, you know, just saw how well Jason treated us, myself and my son, and how much my son loved and respected and admired Jason was really important. You know, it's very undeniable when you kind of see that type of relationship. But at that, you know, I I had to make a decision. Uh, There was a decision point in my life where I had to say, okay, I'm, who am I living my life for? You know, am I living my life for My parents for the optics of what it looks like to the community and what's acceptable for the community? Or am I living life on my terms at this point? Is Shelly A and Shelly B finally going to become one person? (laughs) And at that point, yeah, I was, I was, like I said, I was a grown woman, you know, like I'm in my late twenties. I'm a mother. And I thought, I I have to live life on my terms because otherwise, what am I teaching my son? I'm teaching my son to try to people please his entire life and to only do you know what what he's told or what's acceptable as opposed to what's in his heart and what he believes is the right thing to do and and just live life on his own terms. And so you know I often say and I and I tell my son this and he's like oh come on you know mom <laughs> because you know how they are at that age but I always you know I always say to him like you know having you really change how like I was forced to Cause you're taking care of this other person and you're very conscious of like what they're, how they're viewing you and what they look at and, and the message and the signals that you're sending. And you don't want to say one thing and do something completely different, yeah. which I noticed a lot growing up, you know, with my parents, like they would say one thing and it would be like something completely else happening. And it just, I couldn't wrap my head around it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't match up in my head. And so it always bothered me. And I, I just resolved to, to try to not be that way.
0: It's interesting. There seems to be a lot of unpredictable possibilities that pop up around you. One of the things that you said in the very beginning of the book and then expanded on later about the secret to life, that the secret to life is to show up. Talk about how that evolved and guided you and how it continues to guide you and and is part of your teaching.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think people think it's like this oversimplified Meaning this oversimplified thing when they're like, that's the meaning of life. That's it. Like you just want me to show up. And I'm like, yeah, think about all the times in your life where you had this like opportunity to, to rise up to, to show up for a person or to show up for yourself or to a decision point where again, not doing anything is also a decision point. So and you just decided to do nothing, to do nothing about speaking up on behalf of someone or something or just even the act of getting dressed sometimes and like going out into the world. It's easier to just kind of fall back and rest on our laurels, especially nowadays when the world is burning around us, like literally and figuratively and, and say, like, it's not my problem. It doesn't affect my life. But it does. It does. I talk about it and I tr- in the book, and I, and I love resting on this Buddhist proverb, tend to the area of the garden that you can reach. Mm-hmm. Because I think that that's something that people can like wrap their heads around. When you look at the problems of the world, sometimes when we look at the problems in our life, they're very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. They're daunting. They're heavy. We feel like, well, that's that. I can't solve that. I'm not going to solve racism. Like, so, you know but I'm not racist, but I'm not going to solve racism. But we forget that actually, no, like we have to show up in even in, in our own community, tend to the area of the garden that we can reach. Fix the injustices that are in our periphery, that are in our proximity, right? Because it does make a difference. It ripples out into the universe. And I talk about ROI being not return on investment, but really ripples of influence. That's the measurement that we should measure our lives by. How many ripples are we creating on a daily basis? So if we metaphorically think of ourselves as pebble, and every morning when we wake up, we have the opportunity to thrust ourselves into the pond. How many days a week are you really thrusting yourselves into that pond to make a ripple and to not spend the entire week looking at your neighbor's yard and their garden and saying, Oh, look at his grass; it's so green. Oh, look at her flower bed. You know she really needs to tend to it better. Like, no, just focus on your own garden, on your own plot. Focus on the people within your circle of influence, within your proximity, in your community. The people you work with, the people you touch every day, the places you frequent. So, a tangible example, for example, in in the area of, uh, arena of racism, and I use this example because. In a course that I teach with a black meditation teacher, Justin Michael Williams, called Liberation Experience, where we really teach like the prerequisite work that is required for anti-racism work to be meaningful and for us to be able to show up for it. One of our participants was inspired after they took the course to go to the neighborhood, all of within their community, within their county all of the neighborhoods, libraries, public library systems, and the libraries at each school to make sure that they had books about diversity and equity and quality, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was, and they wound up raising money so that they could purchase these books and gift them to these libraries at, at elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, and then public libraries. You know, you think about that, that is the definition of showing up. That is a definition of saying this is look, I can't I can't buy books for every library in the country, but I could do it for my own community. I could tend to the area of the garden that I could reach and maybe also inspire somebody in the county over to do the same thing and inspire another person, inspire another person. And suddenly, you know, we're, we're making this huge impact. And those are the ripples that I'm talking about that that I think we just think too big sometimes. We're so overwhelmed by you know, what's happening in the world that we just We're afraid to like boil it down because we think, oh, um, if I just do this one thing, it's so insignificant. We forget that, and this is really bringing it back full circle to Pandemic of Love, that when a lot of people do a little bit, it creates this huge impact. That ripple becomes a wave, becomes a tsunami.
0: I love your redefinition of ROI, ripples of (laughs) influence. That's so brilliant. And all of these things that you're talking about take courage, and the thing that really... Stop me! Went yes. Is your your comment that you said courage is cultivated through our need for connection, mm. and it's so important right now to recognize how we're all connected and, oh, and yeah. how, how we're all interconnected and interdependent, actually. But we're stuck in this separate self, this idea of separation. Yeah. Talk about your work and how you tap into this courage through the need for connection. I love that.
1: Well, it's so interesting because so I'm part of this, I'm part of the Garrison Institute fellowship. And one of our uh, mentors is someone who's really become a a big part of my life and a a dear friend is Dr. Dan Siegel, who uh, many people, I'm sure, who listen to your uh, show know who that is. And Dr. Siegel talks about this. Term called MWE, M W E, right? Like the me and the we together, and how he defines it as in- intra connectedness, which is different than interconnectedness, right? Interconnection meaning two separate entities or beings connect. But intra connectedness, he argues, uh, and he has a new book coming out, is that it's the realization, like you said, of the separate self, it's the realization that. No, we're not these two separate entities. Actually, we're part of the same the same species. We're part of the same ecosystem. And when we can look at each other and recognize that, just like a network of trees, you know, in a forest is intra connected underground, may not be visible to the eye. We can we can be blind to the fact and just say, no, no, no. It's there. There's 200 separate trees here. They're not connected. But when you can kind of go deeper and recognize that they're very much connected underground and that they are one entity, one ecosystem that exists and supports each other, it really creates this shift and this collective like responsibility, this inherent and moral responsibility that we have for every single person that this woman sitting in the waiting room at the DMV in Brooklyn felt for me. A young two-year-old girl that did not speak English that she didn't know that she felt so intraconnected in that moment that she recognized that her, her sense of agency just kicked in and she realized like, wait a minute, this is, I need to do something about this in this moment. And so I feel like when we can recognize that we also tap into our sense of agency and then we can have the courage that we need because we realize we're not alone We're not alone in rising up. We're not alone in standing up for someone or speaking out, but rather we are standing on the backs, yes, of our ancestors and we're standing on the backs of all the people who did the work before us, but we're also standing arm in arm and linked with all the people that we are speaking out on behalf of and also who are doing the same work we're doing in other communities.
0: Well, one thing I was wondering about, but you just brought up agency, so I want to get into that, but how is your eyesight? There's another hurdle that you've yeah. had, and I think you're, it's still degenerating, isn't it, or did you?
1: Yeah. so I unfortunately you know, lost my eyesight uh, in my left eye due to an eye condition that I was diagnosed with at the age of 27, so well over 20 years ago uh, after my divorce, just a really tough time in my life. At this point, I'm still very much in active treatment. I see an ophthalmologist at a very specific eye center like every three months and get treated multiple times a year for my eye to stave off any further damage in my right eye. It's interesting because really for me, and and I talk about this in the book, like being diagnosed with the eye condition really was this like seminal turning point. It's almost like when someone flips over an hourglass with sand and says like these are the days of your life like you've got x amount of time the time time is ticking it's like if we knew if, if somebody told us like on um, this is the date you're gonna die suddenly there'd be this sense of urgency we wouldn't think that tomorrow is guaranteed right and so for me being told when i was diagnosed that i would likely be blind by the time i was 40 that was a a sense of urgency. It lit a fire underneath me to say, well, wait a minute, like, okay, I'm twenty seven now. I've got a thirteen years possibly to see what I want to see and put myself in the line of beauty as often as possible and pay attention to specific details like laugh lines on my mom's face and my son's eyelashes and et cetera, et cetera. I really looked at it later on as a gift. It first felt like very much like a curse. But when I reflect back on it now, I can really see, no pun intended, that it really was one of the biggest gifts of my life was receiving this diagnosis because it it forced me to reconcile a lot of things, and live life on my terms, and make sure that I don't take things for granted that we oftentimes, like eyesight, take for granted.
0: Yeah, it brings up for me, too, the distinction between seeing and vision.
1: Yeah. Two you very have, a, good you have a great
0: vision. <laughs> Whether you can see or not, I'm sure yeah. it will always be there. So agency, you brought up agency, and I think that's really an important aspect of your work to talk about. So Let's talk about reclaiming our sense of agency and how we give our agency away.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I look, all of us are born with agency. All of us are born, and some of us define it as like free will or God-given free will, right? So you could define agency in different ways. But really having a sense of agency means that we have the inherent understanding that our actions affect others. And we think about that prior to taking that action, and also while we're taking that action, and uh, understand it after that action is taken. And then, in doing so, we really—if we really understand that—it changes the way that we make certain decisions, right? If we can pause, if we can, if we can wrap that sense of agency in something as powerful as pausing. In meditation or pausing in in a contemplative way, minding the gap, if you will, we can choose the response, right, instead of the the reaction. Lean into that.
0: Yeah, beautiful. It, it really has a lot to do with choices we make. You know, it's, it comes down to yeah. What you know, what choice am I going to make here? And we often withhold ourselves and and hold ourselves back. And right. I think a lot of that comes from. our identity or narrative or the story that we live into. And Mm -hmm. one of the parts that I really appreciate, and it's very much a part of my work too, is the deconstruction and reconstruction of our own narrative of the story of me. No,
1: you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. For me, understanding that I had the agency to make changes in my life, that until such time, my son you know, recognize his own sense of agency. I mean, not that children don't have their own sense of agency, but when they reach a certain age, it's kind of like at a different at a different level that I I realized that I I have the power. I have a power that rests in choices that I can make on a daily basis and that I have a responsibility to myself, to my son, to my community, and then ultimately to the world to make the best choices that I can that harm the least amount of people.
0: So talk about how you work with people to help them to deconstruct and reconstruct a more empowering story. I think that's Mm. such an important part. You know, I work a lot with people with trauma, which which makes it even more difficult. But that's the area of unintegrated past that that is Mm. in our body. I'm I'm very somatic about the work that I do with people. But uh, I'm I'm just curious since you're now teaching and working with a lot of people. Yeah, how do you lead people? How do what do you tell our audience today about how they can actually first of all discover? Oh, I live inside of the circumference of my own story. How can I expand that and yeah. uh, be yeah. have more capacity?
1: Sure. Well, one of the one of the practices, the, the simplest practice, right, that I that I teach in my workshops actually rests on a practice that's widely taught by many different teachers called RAIN, right? So it's yeah. an acronym. Tara
0: Brock.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, so actually Tara teaches it and it's really credited to her, and it's, but it's she's not the person who came up with it. Just oh, really? Oh,
0: I always no. thought it was, yeah.
1: No, no, no. So I, it's sad that I forget the name of the person that has, but everybody who's listening to this, go look it up because Tara teaches it, but wasn't actually the inventor of the acronym or the, the person who should be credited with it, but should be credited with widely disseminating it and teaching it in a very loving and wonderful and impactful way. Right. Um. But I, you know, what I do is I oftentimes Teach a practice that I call "After the Rain" because I think rain can only take you so far, <laughs> and whether you you you, you stop. Tell, tell or people another... what
0: the acronyms for, for yeah. our listeners. To, I, so I, I
1: rain to is recognize. So recognize the emotion that you're feeling in that moment, right? Uh, or as to reference again, Dr. Dan Siegel, name it to tame it. Um, recognize, label the emotion that you're feeling associate words to it because that helps, right? That helps to, first of all, identify what you're feeling when you're in a moment of stress, when you're in a moment of anxiety, fear, um, when you're in fight, flight, freeze, angry, and on and on. And one tool that you can use to recognize is the wheels of wheel of emotion. And you can Google wheel of emotion. And there's tons of different versions of this. Some that have like, you know, three levels and some that have multiple levels and they're in every color of the rainbow. And it's a really useful tool, especially when you are at a loss for words. A is for uh, accept or allow. I've seen it both ways. And essentially, what that means is you're recognizing what you're feeling, but you're allowing it to be what it is. And you're not judging yourself. There's no self flagellation, there's no shame. Uh, in what it is that you're feeling in that moment. It's just this kind of resting space, this clearing and dense force, if you will, to be able to just rest in that awareness of what it is that you're recognizing. Then the eye is investigating, investigating why you're feeling that specific way. Um, really going in deeper and, and asking yourself the seminal question of where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Where does it hurt in my body physically? Where does it hurt uh, emotionally? Where does it hurt when I think about it? And you're sort of, you know, really scanning your body, your mind, your spirit for for, um, clues as to where this is coming from. And the N is for nurture. And it's really about this... um, You know, a recognition that you have this ouch feeling, that you've 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 investigated where it hurts, and now you're tending to the place that it hurts. You're tending to yourself, and and that could look a lot of different ways. That could be uh, any measure of self care that you decide to enact in that moment. It could be calming words that you say to yourself. It could mean bringing your hand to your to your heart center and like soothing yourself, rocking yourself, humming to yourself, saying, I love you to yourself, et cetera, et cetera. It's such a beautiful practice. But after I go through this process of like recognizing, accepting, investigating and nurturing myself, when I feel angst or fear or anger over what is happening in the world or what's happening in my household or what's happening in my community, nurturing myself seems like a great place to end, but not really because I think, well, okay, so now I feel better, but everybody, everything around me is still on fire. What do I do now? And so I think this stems back to, and I, I can credit my Jewish education in this, in this way where it's inherently understood, you know, the Jews have this concept of tikkun olam, which means repairing the world. Like we have this inherent responsibility in life to contribute to the world at large, not just to our own life. Like that is a mitzvah. It's a good deed. It's something that you must do in your lifetime and really understand the wider kind of um, purpose of your life. And so after I practice RAIN and I'm seeing that there's still a fire and I am now unscathed by the fire, maybe only have first degree burns, so to speak, from this fire. It's my responsibility to grab buckets of water and to run back into the fire and to try to save others. And so when I recognize what I'm feeling, when I understand that I'm okay, I'm in a moment of like, oh, okay, I'm okay, or I'm going to be okay. Then I can ask myself two follow-up questions. And the first question is, what can I do that is tangible? How can I tend to the area of the garden that I could reach in a meaningful way in this moment? Not, you know, a huge lofty plan in a year from now, but in this very moment. So if you, if I could take you back to um, a specific, you know, example, like with Pandemic of Love, I went through the RAIN practice for many days, feeling very fearful of the unknown, afraid for my mom who was immunocompromised, afraid for my family and work and all these other things that everybody was feeling at the time. And then when I got to a place where I was like, okay, we're going to be okay. Like we're, we're, you know, we have each other, we have our relative health, we're going to be okay. Now, what can I do for the community members who are stuck, who are not going through this process, who don't realize they're going to be okay, or maybe they're really not going to be okay because they don't have food and they don't have shelter and they don't, you know, have access to a resources or, or a community that can take care of them. And so I thought to put up these two forms. I know I'll connect people. You know, I started to really lean into that question: what can I tangibly do? But there's a follow up question which is really important. And the follow up question is: and how do I come from a place of love? And it's so important to ask that question. It's a central question. And it's a litmus test. And I ask it last because sometimes when I'm angry and I think, and what can I do about this in this moment? The answer that I come up with is not always resting in a place of love. It might be something that's very reactive, actually. It might be something that is hurtful to a specific person or community, or maybe won't do as much good in the world that I want it to do. And so, so that is the litmus test. Yeah. You know, how is it coming from a place of love?
0: Yeah. Beautiful. And it doesn't feel like linear, like after rain, it actually feels like that could come before rain also, because it's in looking to heal the community also creates self-healing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it it's, it's when it my is my attention
0: it's, is it's, out there i'm i'm going to have to have agency and step up because i have this commitment so yes. it's not, it's not a linear progression of yeah. of the self-healing does not have to happen before we heal the world so to speak yeah
1: well i mean it is it is really the the cycle of rain right, right. think right. about it like yeah. the way that we learn about it it's just like water in the lake or the pond, and basically it gets evaporated into the clouds and then condensation rains on everyone and then the cycle continues. And really that's what it is. And I love that. Thank you so much for pointing that out.
0: Could go on forever. I think we're getting close to the end of our time here, but it's just been such a joy to be with you, Shelley. And I'm just so inspired by you and and the work. And thank you for taking the time to be on we Earth Radio, I want to plug your book also. It's called Sit Down and Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. How do people get a hold? Let's see, I have your website here. It is your name, Shelly Tegelski, and it's S-H-E-L-L-Y-T-Y-G-I-E-L-S-K-I. Yeah.com.
1: Yeah. Dot com. But people can honestly, you could just search in any search engine, Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y-T-Y-G. There aren't very many of us right. and it'll come up because my name is at- atrocious to pronounce, but really, really hard to spell as well. And I would also suggest that your listeners go to pandemicoflove.com. We're in 20 different countries and Canada and the U.S. included. And so, you know, if you are looking for help, if you need help, go on, fill out this form. We'll connect you with somebody. If you uh, are looking to connect with somebody in your community and want a tangible way to help somebody, then fill out the uh, the give help part of the form. So pandemicoflove.com is also a really great website as well that you can go to. And people can also follow me on IG, on Instagram. I'm very active on Instagram because every day I post to my Instagram stories. I highlight families and people that have extenuating circumstances from the forms that get filled out. You know, people who don't need just a bill paid, but like literally are living in their car or just got diagnosed with cancer and need much more to get to get by and to um, get communal support. And so my handle on um, and that this could be a whole other conversation for another for another uh you uh, might have to do another
0: show <laughs>
1: is mindful skater girl so we could talk about where that handle came uh-huh. from. oh well, let's but keep mindful. people in
0: suspense about that okay <laughs> that's a yeah. that's a good one i also want to say it may be obvious but if you want to contribute to the pandemic of love you can yeah. also go there not just yeah. if you need help
1: yeah so, totally uh,
0: shelly just such a delight to be with you thank you for being on we earth radio
1: Thank you. It was great to speak to you today, Michael. I really appreciate you.
0: Likewise. Thank you. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.